All right, everyone. It's so good to be with y'all again. As Pastor Sue said earlier, I, uh, my name is Pastor Aaron. I'm the children's pastor here at Living Hope Raleigh, and I'm so excited that I get to bring the Word of God to you today. So if you know me, you know probably one thing about me, which is that I am not from North Carolina. I'm from Texas, and Texans love to tell you about how they're from Texas. It's just a thing we do. We love to tell you that we're from the best state in the country, so, you know, is what it is. But I want to give you a little bit of background information on Texas and, of course, a little bit of background information on the passage we'll be reading today. I swear it all ties in. I promise, okay? Just listen for a little bit. So... A few things about living in Dallas. If you have been there before, you will know one of our biggest things is hospitality. You've probably heard it, Southern hospitality. People have to hold doors open. If you're a stranger, you still ask, how are you? You got to pretend you know everybody and you got to pretend that you're happy to see everybody when you're in Texas because that's just Southern hospitality. That's how it goes. Another thing that people in Texas really love is there barbecue? We love barbecue, and I gotta admit, I've never had any North Carolina barbecue, but it's probably not as good as Texas barbecue. I'm sorry, but that's just how it is. I'll try it at some point, but I don't think it's gonna convince me of anything besides what I just said. And then the last thing, and this is especially true for people who live in Dallas, and this is probably our worst offense that we have, is that so many people in Dallas love the Dallas Cowboys. They love football and they love the Dallas Cowboys. I apologize in advance if you've ever met a Cowboys fan before. I promise I'm not one of those guys, okay? I'm not one of those people who is a big Cowboys fan. But I do always notice something peculiar every single time I go back to Dallas. I do go every so often to visit family and visit friends. And a few years ago, I noticed when I went back to Dallas during football season, it was like in the middle of it, there wasn't that really, not too many people wearing Cowboys jerseys. And I was like, well, that's kind of strange because, you know, everybody here loves the Cowboys. I mean, people who don't even live in Dallas wear Cowboys jerseys. So I thought that was a little strange. And then I realized, oh, well, that's because, you know, the Cowboys are not doing good this year. So no one, no one wants to be a Cowboys fan anymore. And see, the thing is, when I was young, the Cowboys were still bad. So nothing much has changed. But when I was really young, like three years old, they actually did win a Super Bowl. So I remember those glory days. I was three years old and I was there when it happened, okay? So you can't take that from me. But... They have not been that great since then. It's been ups and downs and ups and downs. And it's so funny because every single year the Cowboys fan comes up and they say today or this year, it's our year. We're going all the way. We're going to win. And it never happens. We always start pretty good and then we just crash and burn. That's the Dallas Cowboys way, I guess. So you see these people who are so excited, so ready to go to football games. They just... They believe in it. They are passionate about it. And then they lose a game or two, and they're like, okay, I was, I don't know what you're talking about. Cowboys fan who? I don't know who that is. So they take their jerseys off. They go and, you know, live their lives, and they say, okay, maybe I'll put on the jersey next year. Maybe next year will be our year. But this year I'm not a fan anymore. 
And the thing is, I see this happen, and it's just so interesting to me. Like, you want to be a fan when you win the Super Bowl, but you don't want to be there during the hard times when, you know, you lose to the 49ers by, like, 40 points or something like that. <laughs> so, one by one, you see these people saying, you know what? I'm not wearing this jersey. Cowboys done nothing for me this year, so I'll try it next year. And some people, as I said, they remember the glory days of being a Cowboys fan, but then they still want to pretend that those days don't exist because all they're thinking about is, what have you done for me today, sports? What have you done for me, team, this year? We're not talking about last year. We're not talking about the year before. What have you done for me today? If you're good this year, I'll be a fan. If you're not, I won't be a fan. I'll pretend that I don't even know what that is. These Cowboys fans pretty much... What I'm trying to say is they're pretty unreliable, and a lot of the time they are not very faithful to their team. And now I'm going to show you how it ties into the scripture today. We read earlier that Jesus is lamenting Israel, and I believe as we unpack this message today, we're going to find that for believers and non-believers alike today, this is going to be a sobering message, and it might even be a frightening message for us to hear today. I'd like to take a moment to give some context, though, to the passage, because all we read was three verses, and that's what we're going to be circling around. But we're going to be jumping around Scripture today as well. So first, let me give you some context. Two chapters ago, in chapter 21 in the book of Matthew, Jesus has this triumphal entry. So he comes into Jerusalem. All the people are excited. They're ecstatic. They're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. This guy is the Christ. He's the Lord. He comes in on the cult. Everyone's putting the palm trees down. They are praising and worshiping the Messiah. It's a beautiful scene. All the people are recognizing Jesus for who he really is, or so it seems. And then in chapter 2, the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, are interrogating Jesus. They just get done interrogating Jesus in chapter 22. So then they come into the scene after the triumphal entry. And all they're trying to do is entrap Jesus so they can arrest him or so they can kill him or both. The first thing they try to do is they get to talking about taxes, a very interesting subject, I'm sure. But there is a reason for this. So the scribes and Pharisees and a lot of people in Jerusalem thought to themselves, okay, the Messiah is going to be like King David. That's one of Jesus' titles, actually, a son of David. They're saying he is going to be a king. He's going to be a conqueror. Anyone who goes against him, he's going to fall, which means Rome is falling, and Jerusalem will be lifted up. That's the Messiah. So they think to themselves, okay, if this is the Messiah, then why are we paying taxes to the emperor? I mean, he's the real king, right? So shouldn't we be giving our money to him, to the cause? Shouldn't we rise up and take these shackles of slavery off from Rome and establish ourselves as this glorious kingdom? See, the Israelites in this time wanted a lion. They didn't want a lamb. They wanted King David. They didn't want Shepherd David. 
Then the next thing they go on to is they ask about marriage and heaven, which is a really interesting topic as well. And this is kind of to make Jesus look foolish or for him to look like he doesn't have a lot of knowledge, perhaps confused. And he asks, the Sadducee asks about someone who is widowed and married multiple times. And he pretty much says, okay, well, who's the husband going to be in heaven? If she's married so many people, who is it? And Jesus drops the bombshell that there is no marriage in heaven, so you don't need to be thinking about that. <laughs> and then after that, a lawyer comes up to him and he says, okay, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in the law? What's the biggest thing that we should be doing? What's the most important thing? This whole chapter is pretty interesting in chapter 22. And if you have the time, at some point, I would highly suggest that you go back and read it because this is a really intense exchange, especially when you know that all they're trying to do is imprison Jesus and kill Jesus. None of these questions are really asked in good faith. It's all made to put Jesus away. Now we're in chapter 23, and this is where everything culminates. So we have the triumphal entry in 21, the questioning in 22, and now it's time for Jesus to have his response to the people of Israel. This is where I would say the tension really explodes here. Jesus just goes in on these religious leaders. He calls them hypocrites, and he calls them out for their sin. It's a scathing rebuke. A lot of this comes in the form of woes. There are seven of them in chapter 23, but I think the most important one for us today is the last one, which is the seventh woe. And it says this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our father, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify. Some of you will flog in your own synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar." Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. These people chosen by God through Abraham to be a light of the world, to be a light to everybody else. The ones that God chose to have this special and unique relationship with are so unfaithful. Luckily, God is faithful to us and he waits for us to accept him. Reread with me now verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. As we just read before this in the seventh woe, 
Jesus is referring to the prophets of the Old Testament here. He's saying, every single person I sent to you in the past, you killed. Every single love letter I sent to you in the form of a prophet, in the form of a judge, in the form of scribes, you killed them. My love comes to you, and what do you do? You reject it. Have you ever read the Old Testament? I mean, especially Exodus. And you thought to yourself, what are these people thinking? Like, how can they turn their backs on God so quickly? You are the people chosen by God. Like, you're the chosen people. They turn their backs so quickly on God. There's so many stories in which the Israelites just seem to be, in my opinion, completely unreasonable. Like, they just don't have common sense, it feels like. Take Exodus 32, for example. Moses is going up to the mountain to speak with God. This is where the Ten Commandments are written. He goes up to speak with God, and, you know, he takes longer to come down than people originally thought. We don't really know how long it took for him to come down from the mountain. It could have been, you know, a few hours, a few days. It could have been a week, um, but it was probably quite a long time that Moses did not reappear back from the mountain. He takes longer to come down, and this is the Israelites' reaction, which is in Exodus 32. Let me read that for you real quick. It says this, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up. Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. The first idea the Israelites have when Moses is late to the appointment of coming back down from the mountain is, we need new gods. We need new people who are going to lead us and guide us because our leader is gone. And we don't know when he's coming back, so I guess we just need to worship something else now. Like, it almost reads comedically in this regard. It's like Moses just takes a little longer than usual, and they're like, okay, I know that we just got out of Egypt. I know we just saw the Red Sea being parted, but you know what would be great is if you make us some idols, and let's just follow that instead. Like, how do they turn their backs on God so fast? I mean, the Israelites are literally traveling with God at this point. He sent plagues to Egypt. As I said earlier, he parted the Red Sea, and then later he has bread and manna come down from heaven. He is feeding and nourishing them. How can they do this? How can they be so unreasonable here? I want to kind of break the illusion here, because, you know, a lot of times we read the Old Testament this way. Man, these Israelites, they just don't understand. They just don't know how good God is. I mean, we just sing about it this morning, the goodness of God is coming after me. They don't know the goodness of God, but I know the goodness of God. I know how it is to be a believer. I know how to follow God faithfully. That's what we read. That's what we say to ourselves when we're reading the Old Testament a lot of the time, and I would do it the same way. We like to tell ourselves, well, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have been like that. But let's reread Matthew 23, verse 30. If we had lived in the days of our fathers, the Israelites, 
we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. You see, although Jesus here is talking to the Pharisees specifically and the religious leaders in his day, we do the exact same thing. It's so easy for us to praise God when we're getting everything that we want or the things in life are going easy. But it's not so easy to praise God when we don't get the job we want, when we don't get a good grade on the test we took, when we have to go to school later in life, when the person that we were interested in isn't interested in us, when maybe one of our friends or family members falls away from the faith, or maybe they are passed away. But we love to say, if I lived in the days of Israel, if I lived in the Exodus, I wouldn't have taken part in shedding the blood of the prophets. I wouldn't have taken part in worshiping idols. And Jesus says right back to us, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. We are not willing. So the first point is this, that we really have an issue with unfaithfulness. Even as believers, we have an issue with unfaithfulness. Our faith is so weak. It's so minuscule. It's so small. We trust God when he parts the Red Sea, and then we forget about him when his prophet takes just a little longer than we want to from coming down the mountain. Continue with me now in verse 38. It says this, See, your house is left to you desolate. You know what the good thing about sports is? It's just a game. It doesn't really matter. You know, it doesn't really mean anything. You know, as I was using that analogy about a Cowboys fan, I mean, you can put anything there. You can put any sports fan there. They can take off their jersey. They can throw a fit. They can cry about it and whatever. And they can treat this fan base just so flippantly. They cannot care. But if they go and buy a ticket to the game, the staff will treat them like they are the number one fan. They'll be like, I'm so glad you're here. This is amazing. This is awesome. You've always been a fan, right? They won't. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. It's such a small thing in life. But I think a lot of the time with our faith, we treat it the exact same way. Ah, well, you know, life is hard right now, so let me just take off my Christian jersey for a little bit. Yeah, you know, financially I've been struggling, so I don't really feel like living the Christian life right now. Man, someone wronged me, so I think, you know, maybe I can just wrong them this one time. We can't treat our faith like a game. We can't treat our faith like it's something we can just take off and put on, take off and put on. Ah, I'll be a fan when we're doing really good. When my faith is really good, I'm a fan. I love Jesus now. Oh, well, the trial comes. I don't know. I don't know. 
But a lot of us treat our faith this way. We have an issue with unfaithfulness. This salvation, this faith is a lot more serious than a sport. And we can't afford to have our spiritual house desolate. Now, when Jesus says this, your house is left to you desolate, he is referring to the temple. God's presence is now leaving the temple, and it's never going to return because now the time has come for the Holy Spirit to come. It's now the church where God will dwell. He'll dwell in us. And he's telling the Israelites, it's over. It's done. You've missed your chance. The boat has sailed. But I believe this is also speaking to the spiritual condition of the religious leaders and the Israelites. You see, in Revelation 3, the author is speaking to a multitude of churches, and I'm just going to jump there real quick. You don't have to turn there. But one church in particular, he says this about them. This is Revelation 3.15. He says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. And I would rather you either be cold or hot. But because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. When I was preparing for this sermon, I was reading a few commentaries, and I think one got it exactly right when they were describing this verse in Revelation 3. It says this, The heat that God is talking about here in God's Word is the glowing, fervent zeal and devotion, which is commended. It's good. The cold, then, is describing the state of those who are untouched by the gospel of love, or unbelievers. So you have the people who are fervent, determined believers, and then you have the unbelievers, hot and cold. And Scripture is saying, I would rather you be hot or just don't believe at all. So then what is lukewarm? Lukewarm is an intermediate state. The lukewarm is not earnest for God, but they aren't indifferent to religion. They are perhaps best described as those who take an interest in religion. They like going to church, um, but their worship is actually the idol of good taste or good form, meaning their idol is being comfortable in church. Their idol is, oh, well, I like this place because, you know, I have a lot of friends here and it's nice and it's comfortable and, you know, they don't ask for too much from me and all of that. It's this idea of cultural Christianity. I sing the songs, I read the Bible, but, you know, on Monday I'm just back to myself. So then people who are hot, it leads them to regard enthusiasm these people who are lukewarm, they see people who are hot or enthusiastic about their faith. They see that as ill-bred or disturbing. People who are passionate about the gospel, people who are passionate about their faith, that disturbs the intermediate Christian, the lukewarm Christian, the cultural Christian. They say, okay, yeah, we all love God, but like, calm down. <laughs> the issue with lukewarm Christians that's described in Revelation 3 is these are the people who never put themselves in any inconvenience. They never braved any reproach. They never abandoned any comfort for Christ's sake. 
but they hope to keep well with the world. They hope to blend in with the world. And they flatter themselves, and while they flatter themselves, and they stood well, they thought they stood well with God, they're actually in danger of betraying their master, like Judas, with a kiss. What's worse than someone who is wrong is someone who can't admit to being wrong. I remember I used to have this habit, and I still do sometimes, um, where with my brothers, I'll get into like these little debates. Um, one of the more fun ones I like to do with my brothers is talk about Mandela effects. If you don't know what a Mandela effect is, it's pretty much when you read something or see something, you remember it, but it actually isn't the way you remembered it. And usually this happens in kind of a mass group of people. So a lot of people will remember something one way, but it's the incorrect way. One of the most famous ones is the Bear Scene Bears. It's a kid's book, and people say, well, is it the Bear Scene Bears, or is it the Bear Scene Bears? Which one is it called? And people get all up in arms and say, no, it's called Bear Scene Bears or Bear Scene Bears. Or another one that I heard recently is the Shoes Sketchers. Does it have a T in the name, or does it not have a T in the name? I'm not going to tell you the answer. I'll just let you try and figure it out. But people debate about this. They say maybe there was a T in it one time or maybe there wasn't a T in it one time. But I love getting in these little debates because I just think it's fun. I think it's fun arguing with my brothers. I think that's probably what it is. But I have a habit where even when I'm wrong about little things like this and I know I'm wrong, I just won't admit it. I'll just keep going and going and going even when I know I'm wrong because honestly, I think it's kind of funny. I'll just be like, no, 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 no. I'm right. You're wrong. You're just misremembering things or no, no, no. You can't believe anything like everything the internet tells you. I'm right. I'm more right than the internet. So I will keep this charade going where I just won't admit I'm wrong. However, I think this also creeps into my life in general, and I think it does for a lot of us, where we actually do have a hard time admitting when we are genuinely wrong. When we genuinely do have a problem and we have to go to someone and say, you know what, I actually did mess up. I actually did do something to hurt you, and I apologize for that. And I think we all need to work on that, of course, and I try to work on that myself by trying to figure out what I could have done better and having a habit of apologizing. But the issue is, for some of us, we are like the Pharisees, and not only are we wrong, but we can't admit we're wrong. So the second point is that we have an issue even admitting that we're unfaithful. It's not only that we're unfaithful, it's that we even have a problem admitting we are unfaithful. We have a problem with saying, ah, well, my faith is not where it needs to be sometimes. Sometimes I messed up. And that's even worse. And if we're not careful, our spiritual house, the spiritual condition is going to be left desolate, meaning that our faith is going to be pretty much dead. Now to verse 39. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
So you might say to yourself, Pastor Aaron, this message is pretty bleak. This is not very encouraging, Pastor Aaron. The first two points you've made is you called all of us unfaithful and said we have a problem with that, and then you said we have a problem admitting we're unfaithful. Yeah, it's tough, and it's hard for all of us, and we have this issue, and I have that issue as well, but luckily for us, there is a solution. There is a way out. If we're really at this place where we're unfaithful, and we're really at this place where we struggle to admit that we're unfaithful, well, what now? Well, just as we sang earlier, God's forgiveness, Him running after us, it's a beautiful thing. And I think this is perfectly illustrated in the story of Jonah. And I'm going to try and blast through this real quick. You don't have to turn there, but let me give you the quick story. Jonah goes to the land of Nineveh. The land of Nineveh is Gentile people. They are not Israelites. They have no scripture. They have no idea of the one and true God. And, you know, Jonah doesn't really want to go there. As a matter of fact, he tries to run away, but, you know, God in his perfect sovereignty says, uh, no, you're still going, so... At some point, Jonah gets swallowed up by a fish, and he is spit out on the beach of Nineveh. And God says, this is the message you need to deliver to these people of Nineveh, these people who are not Israelites, these people who are unbelievers. You need to repent. And if you don't repent, God will destroy you. If you don't stop your sin, God will destroy you. Mind you, Jonah is speaking to a whole entire city. It isn't like, okay, go to this, you know, group of people right here, just a few people. You know, you have a better chance at maybe people being turned from their sin if there's just a few of them. But you're saying like thousands of people and all of them have to turn away from their sin. Not only that, people have never even heard of the one true God. They have no context of scripture at all, these people in Nineveh. So what do they do? Well, Jonah 3, 7 through 10 says this, By the decree of his kings and nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Jesus' forgiveness, God's forgiveness is open wide for all of us. He's eager to forgive us. Believer and non-believer alike. So the final point is this, that the solution to unfaithfulness is repentance. I know for some this might seem odd, especially if you're already a believer. If you're already a Christian, you're saying, well, Aaron, I have been saved. I have been baptized. I am a believer. The repentance we're talking about here is twofold. It's not 
for believers. It is not one that is salific. It's one that is sanctified, meaning that we have to have a habit of humility. We have to have a habit of telling God our sins, confessing our sins. Because when we have this habit of repentance, we are turning back to God. It's sanctification. You know, Jesus says at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit and blessed are those who are mourned. What Jesus is saying here is blessed are the ones who actually feel the weight of their sin. Don't get numb. We have to praise God for the forgiveness that he gives us, but we can't forget where we came from. We still stumble. We still fall, even as believers. We still mess up. We sin daily. So we should probably make a habit of repenting daily in our prayer lives. My favorite theologian, as a lot of you know, is Charles Spurgeon. He has a lot of great insights anytime I read any of his commentary. And I think he says this perfectly when it comes to repentance. Now, the context in which he's speaking about repentance is for ministers, for pastors. Um, But I think this is for everybody. He says this, he says, the fact is the secret of all ministerial success lies in the prevalence at the mercy seat. Meaning a healthy spiritual life, a healthy life turned towards God is one that recognizes our sin and is repentful of our sin, not just once, but a constant habit of going to God's mercy seat and saying, Lord, I'm sorry for the sins I commit against you. And as I said earlier, although this is in a ministry context, I would be remiss to not tell my brothers and sisters in Christ to do the same thing. We have to have a humble posture. We have to have a humble heart. We have to recognize the sins that we commit and we have to repent because God's arms are open wide, ready to forgive us daily. We have to be familiar with repentance in our prayer lives. Verse 39, Jesus concludes this lamentation that we find in Matthew 23. He says this. He says, I am coming back and it'll be too late for you then. He's saying this to the Israelites. He's saying at this point, I'm coming back and it'll be too late. Or as it says right there, you'll not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But remember verse 37, the top of this little passage here. I think that is where the whole point of this is. In verse 37, Jesus is saying, I would have taken you into my fold Israel, if you were to just repent, if you were to just say, I'm sorry and turn from your ways, Israel, I would have taken you in. 
Brothers and sisters, his arms are open wide like a mother hen. Do you know why Jesus uses this example, the mother hen? I don't know if you've caught on yet or not, but Jesus is a pretty clever guy. So when he uses analogies like this, we should probably figure out why he's saying what he's saying. I mean, he is pretty smart after all. So while I was getting ready for the sermon, I was like, okay, I'm going to look up what this means. What does it mean to be a mother hen? And I found something that was really interesting, this little fact, which came from a Renaissance writer talking about chickens. I know, very interesting subject, talking about chickens. He said this, though, at the first sign of a predator, mother hens will immediately gather their chicks under the shadow of their wings. And with this covering, they put up such a very fierce defense, striking fear into their opponent's eyes in the midst of a frightful clamor. Using both wings and beak, they would rather die for their chicks than seek safety in flight. Brothers and sisters, Jesus came down from heaven to earth to live with a bunch of of unfaithful people like you and me. He opened his arms wide, and instead of seeking safety in flight, he chose the cross. Not long after Matthew 23, Jesus is taken in, he is arrested, and then he is crucified on the cross. And Jesus' last message to the Israelites is, I would have taken you in like a mother hen. I would have protected you in my fold if you were to just repent. If you were to just turn from your ways. But it was you who was not willing, not I who was not willing. Jesus would rather die for you than see you eternally separated from the Father. And so he did. He wants us to have eternal life. He wants to be with us. Paul says it in a different way in Galatians chapter 5. He says, Christ wants us to be free from sin. He says in Galatians chapter 5 verse 1, For freedom Christ set us free Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul is saying, Christ set us free from sin. Don't put that bondage of slavery, of sin, back on you again. We have to be familiar with the mercy seat of God. We have to be a repentant people. Don't have a lukewarm faith We have to practice repentance in our prayer. We have to practice repentance with our brothers and sisters. We must be a people who are familiar with our sin, who recognize our sin and repent of our sin. For the unbeliever who might be here today, the message is simply this. I hope that you will seek forgiveness in Christ. I really do. And for people here who are believers, I pray you don't have a lukewarm faith. Because that's even worse than being hot or cold. 
I pray that your heart is not desolate. You might have grown up in the church. You might have been raised in the church. But I pray and I encourage you to be familiar with God's grace and mercy and his forgiveness. If that's you, I encourage you to accept the Lord as the unbeliever and for the believer. I encourage you to be familiar with God's forgiveness in our lives. His arms are open wide, ready to receive us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you and praise you that you have given us forgiveness. Not only have you given us forgiveness, you've given it to us in a double portion. Forgiveness on top of forgiveness, God. You are there for us. Your arms are open wide. You give us freedom. Freedom from sin. The slavery that is sin. God, I pray, and in our times of unfaithfulness, we won't be ignorant to that. We will recognize when we are unfaithful. We will recognize that we are weak, that we need your forgiveness. God, you have given us so much. You run after us, God. We don't run to you. You run to us. God, I pray we will recognize that goodness. I pray that we will recognize truly the words that we sing. That for all of our lives, you have been faithful. You have been good. God, I pray if there's anyone here who has not made that decision to follow you, that today will be the day. God, I pray that for us as believers, we won't have a lukewarm faith. We won't have this spiritually desolate faith. God, I pray that we'll be familiar with your mercy and your love. I pray this not just for the congregation here, but myself as well. God, please help all of us not forget the weight of our sin and the freedom that your mercy gives us. God, I love you. We love you. We thank you and praise you for your son and all the good things that you've given us. Send your son's holy and precious, wonderful name, I pray. Amen.